Hi, I'm Jonathan Pennington, and this is the Human Flourishing Podcast. This podcast is a repository of a wide variety of sermons, lectures, interviews, and other resources that I've recorded over the years. Today's episode is a sermon I preached at Sojourn East in Louisville, Kentucky. What do you think uh, that Jesus looked like? Do you ever ask yourself that? I don't mean just physically, but I mean his countenance, his posture. I mean, do you envision Jesus as very serious, maybe even scowling? Did Jesus show up as aloof and reserved? I regularly teach classes in the Gospels, and one of the things I like to do is I bring in a lot of sacred art and films as well to give another angle onto experiencing these biblical texts. And I'm particularly interested in Jesus' movies, because when you make a movie about the Gospels, you have to make all kinds of decisions about what was happening and what it looked like, and particularly what Jesus was like that you don't even think about when you're just reading the text. What was his presence like? What was his demeanor like? So, for example, when you think of what Jesus looked like, do you think of him as somber, forget the first picture there, as somber and serious? like from Jesus of Nazareth, or maybe playful and thoughtful, like from God's spell? I was actually really struck by this question of what's Jesus' demeanor several years ago because I, I was teaching a class on the Sermon on the Mount, and I collected together a bunch of different Jesus film versions of the sermon. We watched a bunch of them, and I'd show these to my students, but there was always one version of it that caused the most reaction, And it's a version from a great version called the Visual Bible. And all of the, all of the Jesus, of all the Jesus movies, it has to be the most careful and conservative because there are no words in the entire film that are not the actual words from Matthew. And they don't rearrange any stories. They don't do anything. It's just the reading of the text and the acting out of it. I mean, it's well done, but it's, there's nothing added in that sense. But still, the directors of the film have to choose an actor who looks like something, and they have to make decisions about how the words are going to be spoken, the intonation, the attitude, the inflection. Now, the reason this version that I've, that I've shown in class many times gets the most reactions is because even though the only thing that's in it are the words of Matthew, the Jesus in this version is primarily happy. Here's some pictures of what he looks like. When Jesus is teaching the Sermon on the Mount, for example, in this version, he's smiling at many points. He's serious at other points, but he's smiling. He's, he's laughing at many points. He even kind of makes, makes fun of and or is playful with one of the things he says. Like he says, why do you say that you who have a plank in your eye, let me remove that speck from yours. And he holds up a staff and puts it on his eye. And it is funny actually to think of that. But while a lot of students like this depiction of Jesus and I do, a lot of times people don't like this. I think part of the problem is that the actor is an American. We like our, Brit- our Jesus to have British accents, of course, but the not Cockney or something, but just a nice, good South of England accent. That's part of it. But I think the biggest problem is that most Christians have rarely encountered a happy, joyful Jesus. And some of us, maybe some of you today, that causes an adverse reaction. In fact, if we did a survey right now and asked, when you, what do you think of when you think of describing Jesus, how many of us would put happy 
or joyful at the top of the list. How many of us would even put happy or joyful on that list at all? It might be pretty far down. But why? Why have our depictions of Jesus throughout history been mostly sad and somber and serious and not joyful and jovial? Well, I want you to actually hold that thought in your mind for a moment, and we're going to come back to it. Now, hear the word of the Lord this morning. If you are led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. The acts of the flesh are obvious, sexual immorality, impurity and debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, and envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. And since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. This is the word of the Lord. Now here at Sojourn, we have just started a series of sermons on these verses, particularly the one, 522, that has to do with the fruit of the Spirit. And the double premise of what we're going to be talking about over several weeks is this. First of all, that these fruits of the Spirit or this fruit of the Spirit, these are virtues or character traits. They're ways of being in the world that mark the Christian life because the Christian is filled with the Holy Spirit. These are habits that are energized and inspired by God's own spirit. We don't whip these things up by our own effort. They are gifts and manifestations of the spirit's work in the Christian's life. That's the first premise. And the second is, for this whole series, is that Jesus is the ultimate and perfect model of these fruits or virtues. Now, last week, we thought about love. Today, we're going to talk about joy. The Apostle Paul is saying that a mark of the sign of the Spirit in the Christian's life is joy. Joy, happiness, satisfaction, delight, excitement, pleasure, deep contentment, joy. And even though we don't think about it, joy is actually a major theme throughout the whole Bible. Nearly 400 instances of specific vocabulary of joy and rejoicing. Joy fills people. Joy fills nature. All because God himself is described as overflowing with joy. We even learn that God rejoices over his own people with singing. And we see at creation and new creation that there is a river whose streams make glad the city of God. In fact, we're reminded at Christmas every year, something that we forget during the rest of the time of the year, that the gospel itself is described in terms of joy. The angels announced to the shepherds, what do they say? That this is good news of great joy that will be for all the people. That's how the gospel is described, good news of great joy. And one of the marks of the Spirit's work then in Christian life, in the Christian life is joy. But what does that mean? Well, this morning to think about that, I want to think about joy as being both vertical and horizontal. So let me pause here after that longish introduction and pray once more that God would help us know his joy this morning. Once again, our Father, we come to you uh, as people 
with all kinds of things going on in our lives and distractions and burdens, joys and sorrows. We're gathered here and we'd ask that you would pour out the Holy Spirit so that we might taste and see your goodness. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So vertical joy. Well, the first aspect of joy as a fruit of the Spirit is this one. And we might replace vertical joy with the word rejoicing. Because the Bible is actually chock full of people rejoicing and praising God. This is the kind of joy that is directed upward. From Adam Adam in Genesis all the way to the people of God at the end of the book of Revelation, everywhere in between, people are rejoicing and praising God. In fact, a lot of the story of the Hebrew scriptures is centered on the building of the tabernacle and then the permanent version of the temple so that God's people can worship correctly. There's tons of instructions about what the priest should do and what the musicians should do, all with attention to beauty and detail so that people can rejoice and worship God. The Jewish people were were given meticulous instructions about all of this. And all of this is because of the centrality of the whole Bible of worshiping God. And it's not just duty. It's not just worshiping out of obligation, but it's actually rejoicing, rejoicing and giving thanks for who God is and what he's done. In fact, God is very clear that he is not at all interested in heartless duty. That is not worship. In fact, he sends prophets regularly with warnings that this people often honor me with their lips and their actions, but not their hearts. That's not what God wants. He wants a joy that is directed upward toward him. And so it's natural and good, actually, and a right response to it is to, to who God is. And in fact, we even see that in Romans chapter 1, that sin is described largely in terms of not rejoicing in God. And instead, rejoicing in created things rather than God is actually a major way that sin is described in the Bible in such a way that it ends up in blindness and more sin and degradation. So it's natural that we rejoice and have joy upward. That's why joy is included in this list of the fruit of the Spirit. The Christian, a Christian, is one who has been recreated by the work of the Holy Spirit, who now resides in them, and God's Spirit in us enables us to enter into true and full worship of God. It's the Spirit that bridges the gap between creator and the created, between heaven and earth, between the human and the divine. I remember shortly after I became a Christian, 25 or 30 years ago, whatever it was, and worshiping for the first time. I was a young college student, went to a fall retreat. And I remember so distinctly that for the first time, I wasn't just consumed with myself. I actually saw God. Do you know that experience? That was the spirit in me and the spirit in you connecting me to God. And so it is natural that it is a fruit of the spirit. It all makes sense. But the odd thing about vertical joy, the odd thing about it, in the Bible, is that God often commands us, exhorts us, extols us to rejoice in him. And the reason that's odd is for, and unexpected is for a number of reasons. First, it shows that while you and I spontaneously rejoice in all kinds of things that are beautiful and good, it's just natural, whether it's a sunset or a new car or a great joke or a perfect guerriere cheese, whatever it is, we don't have to whip up joy and rejoicing and even sharing that and praising it. That comes natural to us. But it is unexpected then and odd that we have to be told to rejoice in God. And what that shows is that there is a deep brokenness and sinfulness in us that prevents that. 
But I think even more odd about the command to rejoice is that it's rather weird to be commanded to have an emotion. Have you ever thought about that? It is very odd to be commanded because emotions are spontaneous reactions to experiences, thoughts, physical sensations, and joy is especially a fruit of something else. I mean, have you ever tried to make yourself happy? You just can't do it. And so why is it that God would command us to be happy, command us to rejoice, even we see often in the midst of very difficult circumstances, suffering and persecution? How can it be that God would command us to have this vertical joy? Well, I can't give you a full and complete answer, not only because of our limited time, but because it's a, there's a mystery in this. It's wrapped up, I think, in the, in the mystery of human experience and emotions. But what I do want to say is, is that our souls and our emotions are very complex and often in a paradoxical way, in ways we don't expect. So some of the most joyful and joy-giving Joyful people and joy-giving situations in the world are actually found in the midst of pain and suffering. And some of the saddest people in the world are found in the midst of luxury and ease. Additionally, in a way that defies logic, it's actually also possible to be joyful even through tears. There's a, there's a mystery here. But in short, I would explain God's exhortations for us to rejoice, to have vertical joy, even in the midst of trials and sufferings in this way. That when you and I are told to rejoice, that's not in the first instance a command to have a certain emotion, but it's a command to consider our situations anew from a certain perspective. It's an invitation for us to have a posture of trusting God and receiving all that he has for us. And as we do this, joy does come. Maybe not ha-ha joy, but peace, contentment, satisfaction, life itself. God is not meanly commanding us to have an emotion that we can't, like a junior high girlfriend or boyfriend saying, love me, love me, love me, love me, right? Whoa, that just makes you want to back off, right? Rather, God, by saying rejoice, is inviting you and me to welcome him and his goodness with open arms as the only pathway to true and lasting joy. The command to rejoice doesn't mean be happy right now, but it means be open and open yourself to God because joy will come from this posture of acceptance and trust. One danger, I think, with the command to rejoice is that many Christians don't understand that that command to rejoice does not exclude other things in our lives, sadness, lament, pain, sorrow, regret, grief. Those are all real emotions that are appropriate in the world, emotions that Jesus himself had. And as a result, Many Christians, I'm afraid, we put on plastic smiles. I I grew up in the 70s, and the Halloween costumes then were not nearly as elaborate. They were basically pieces of plastic that you just put with a string around it, and they, you know, imagine a smile, just these plastic smiles. I'm afraid a lot of times Christians, because we read these commands to rejoice, we think that it means we can't be real about our emotions, but instead we always have to have this smile painted on. I know some people like this, and so do you too. And I think many times these are really good people who are trying to be faithful to these commands. But friends, the command to rejoice does not require us to be unreal, 
But again, it's an invitation to trust God with all of our circumstances. I love this welcoming prayer some of you may know. I welcome everything today that comes to me because I know it is for my healing. I open to the love and presence of God and God's action within. But get back to our main point. Central to the fruit of the Spirit in a Christian's life is joy. And I think that in the first instance does mean joy directed toward God but it's not the only thing it means. There's another absolutely crucial aspect of joy that we can call horizontal joy. And it's very important, I think, for you and me this morning to think about horizontal joy together because typically when we talk about the fruit of the Spirit and we think about joy in the Bible, a lot of times it only becomes the vertical aspect and rejoicing in God. And that's good and essential, but it's not the whole story. And I would even say it's probably not primarily the thing Paul's thinking about when he says the joy as the fruit of the Spirit. I think the primary sense here is horizontal joy or joy in life itself. And here's a nice French phrase that we actually use in English sometime. And if you haven't before, now you can. Um, And that is the joie de vivre, this joy in life, rejoice. You have to do your hand like that when you say it. So rejoicing, taking pleasure, relishing some good and beautiful part of creation. It's having a joy in life in something, whether it's the perfect combination of crispy barbecued crust on a juicy rib, if it's the creamy blueberry goodness of a well-poured cup of Ethiopian Yurgachev, if it's a clever wordplay that makes a whole poem make sense at the end, or getting that perfect hearthstone or magic card that enables you to come from behind and win a game, that's for the teenagers, if it's gratitude for Wonder Woman and the fact that DC finally made another decent movie, whatever it is, actually taking pleasure in the beautiful things in the world. And that horizontal joy is the one that many Christians, I think, struggle the most with, both the experience of it and also how to think about it. For many Christians, joy, again, has been reduced only to this vertical joy to a God-directed rejoicing. But I want to suggest to you that that reduction is not entirely good and can even destroy true vertical joy. In fact, it's a deeply sad irony when Christians are the least joyful people in the world, living in constant guilt and anxiety, grouchy and uptight at others and ourselves. And I think that often happens because many Christians, most Christians, I think, would embrace that humanity is sinful and broken, broken, but that distorts often the bigger truth of God's love and joy. So why does horizontal joy matter as a fruit And why is it a fruit of the Spirit? Well, now we can take a step back and think back to what I started with. What was Jesus like? How did he show up in life? Even in the midst of Jesus' life that had a lot of pain and frustration, and by his own sovereign choices was a life that ended up where he was maligned, judged, beaten, and crucified. What was Jesus like? Well, it's very interesting to think about how Jesus shows up in the Gospels. We have four really short biographies of Jesus, and they don't give us anywhere close to what we would like to know. They're not super descriptive. They're really just a highlights reel of his life. They're not the whole life in the sense that they're short snippets chosen out of many, many hours of real life. 
snippets that highlight key things that Jesus said and did, but we don't really see a lot of Jesus during his downtime, right? Which would be kind of weird to see in a, in a gospel anyways. However, <clears throat> the gospels aren't completely devoid of depictions of Jesus' presence. In fact, when we read the gospels asking the question about Jesus's emotions, something becomes very clear, and that is that there are three main emotions that Jesus shows up with in the gospels, and they are compassion, anger, and joy. The number one by far is compassion. Jesus has shown to care deeply for people suffering. That's the dominant emotion that is shown in Jesus in the gospels. Third on the list is anger, but it's interesting. It's not anger like, you know, because somebody's in office now or something. It's anger that is almost entirely directed at those who don't show compassion towards others. So compassion is the primary thing, anger towards those who aren't compassionate. But then the second, right after compassion, the second most frequent emotion of Jesus is joy. Even with the minimal descriptions we have of Jesus' emotions, joy comes out a lot. Things that he says and things that are said about him. And why should we be surprised? If this is a major theme in the Bible, why should we be surprised when we think about the godly characters of the Bible, women and men who are wholehearted and show the whole range of emotions? I I think of King David, a man whose life consisted of great lament and sadness and fear. Just read a bunch of Psalms that he wrote and incredible joy. Read a bunch of Psalms that he wrote. And think of that image of David dancing with all his heart before the Lord. That's the kind of wholehearted person David was Why would we be surprised that the Son of God in the flesh would be less wholehearted than that? In fact, when we get to Jesus, as one New Testament scholar points out, a major theme in the Gospels is maybe surprisingly to us, celebration. Have you ever thought about that as a theme in the Gospels, celebration? Jesus thought that his message and mission was creating a context in which joy and celebration should rule. Again, it's good news. And the response to good news is not glomily, Okay, let's go on with our duty. The response to good news is celebration. Jesus is shown as constantly eating meals with people and that people are attracted to be with him. I would suggest to you that there's a reason for this. Jesus is not a dour, uptight religious guy who is the killer of every great party, where the meal conversation must focus constantly on deep theological points and exhortations and to stop being so bad or so happy. Regular, broken people that we see attracted to Jesus don't go to those kind of parties and don't aren't attracted to that kind of person. <clears throat> In fact, Jesus is even accused, isn't he, by his enemies of being a drunkard and a glutton. While we know that this wasn't the case, this is part of him being maligned, it must have had at least some basis in truth, otherwise it wouldn't have stuck in the sense that he did drink and eat and enjoy these things, especially relative to the religious leaders. We also see that Jesus regularly tells parables about banquets and rejoicing and including celebrations, like as if God is saying, I'm giving a party, are you going to come in? And if those words sound familiar, that's exactly how the familiar prodigal son parable ends. God is saying, I'm giving a party of grace. Are you going to come in and rejoice? And one place we hear Jesus speak a lot about joy is in the gospel of John, where he says things like this. These things I've spoken to you that my joy may be in you and your joy may be full. 
There's much more we could say about this, but let me just be clear. I'm not saying Jesus was the ultimate plastic-smiled, positive-thinking self-help guru or the Jewish predecessor of the Jamaican popular philosophy of don't worry, be happy, man, or something. Nor was he a shallow party animal pursuing the next hedonistic pleasure. He was serious and he was sober at points. He was mad. He was sad. He suffered, but he had joy, both vertical joy and horizontal joy. I can imagine Jesus at the wedding at Cana raising a toast along with Tevya and the other characters of the Fiddler on the Roof saying, to life, to life, l'chaim, right? L'chaim, l'chaim, to life. Life has a way of confusing us, blessing and bruising us, but drink l'chaim to life. If you haven't seen Fiddler on the Roof, that's your assignment for this week, right? The Jesus of the Bible is presented to us as a model of the fruit of the Spirit, and I'm suggesting to you that that includes both vertical and horizontal joy. So what do we make of all this? What do we do with this? Well, let me offer you just a couple of thoughts of reflection and then application, and then we'll be done. First, first reflection. Life and health and lasting joy is found only when both of these, both vertical and horizontal joy, are at work in our lives and habits. Vertical joy without horizontal joy usually leads and looks like legalism and asceticism, where you deny yourself of all pleasures as if somehow that's more godly. And unfortunately, many religious people, including the Christian variety, have only vertical joy and little horizontal joy, and that can be deadly. Hear me clearly. It is possible to be more serious than God. It's not possible to be more joyful than God. Think about that. There are people in the Bible that are more serious than God, right? But there's no one who's more joyful. And so beware of vertical joy without horizontal. Those people are called Pharisees, and it can be us as well. At the same time, if you have horizontal joy without vertical joy, then your joy is going to be short-lived and especially circumstances-based. Much of the trouble in the world comes from people pursuing joy or pleasure apart from God. All of it, I'd say. But that doesn't mean the pleasures are bad. Rather, We need our joys, our pleasures, our pursuit of that to be rightly ordered. Otherwise, we are slaves to circumstances which are beyond our control. If we have horizontal joy, if we pursue horizontal joy, but we have no vertical joy, no rejoicing in God, then we are just slaves to whatever circumstances come our way, whether we'll be joyful or not. What about you? Do you fit into either of those categories today? vertical without horizontal or the other. Second reflection, there's an organic relationship between vertical and horizontal joy. They're not just two distinct things. What I mean is this, vertical joy enables horizontal joy, I'd suggest to you. Because when we have rejoicing in God, when our hearts are directed toward him, that gets us to the source of true joy, not just the remainders of it. And especially it gives us freedom when we are connected to rejoicing in God and not just pursuing horizontal joy. That gives us freedom to not be slaves to the law of diminishing returns. 
You know this with pleasure. You know it. You don't have to live very long before you come to taste the law of diminishing returns. That is that we can try to recreate some, you have some joyful moment, you have some magical moment, some magical, mystical, beautiful, powerful, joyful experience. And then you can do everything you can to try to recreate that event or even do the exact same thing again. And it doesn't quite give the same joy. You caught a glimpse of its fleeting by but you turn to look and it was gone. You cannot put your finger on it. Yes, I'm channeling Pink Floyd because I always listen to Pink Floyd when I write my sermons, so that might explain something, but also because they're speaking to this reality that joy apart from connection to God is fleeting and will never satisfy. We catch a glimpse of it and it is gone. Finding joy in God first frees us to find it in the world because the pressure's off. The pressure is off that I have to find my satisfaction in things of the world. If I find life in God, then I am free to find life in the world. And at the same time, the other organic relationship is that horizontal joy enhances and reveals vertical joy. God has made us as embodied people. And so the pleasures of taste and food textures and smells and wholehearted laughter at a joke or a crazy thing that happens or the comfort of a longtime friend or the excitement of a new one or the pleasure that comes at the end of a day of physical work that created a beautiful garden or maybe helped someone or the pleasure of having a day that's the opposite where all you do is take a nap and eat cheese and read a good book. All of this is, reveals God to us in our bodies. In fact, a soul that does not experience horizontal joy and pleasure, I would suggest to you, is not fully experiencing God. And there are a lot of reasons we don't experience joy. Depression, stress, I understand. But the point is that there, it's not what we're made for and that horizontal joys reveal and enhance our vertical joys. <clears throat> the wonderful philosopher and theologian Hans von Balthasar said, says that beauty in the world is the residue of God's glory. And he says it this way, whoever sneers at beauty can no longer pray and soon will no longer be able to love. We need horizontal joy in some sense. doesn't mean it's necessarily goods and services, but true joy in life enables and reveals and enhances vertical joy. So what do we do? What do we do starting this afternoon and through the rest of the week? Just some brief thoughts of application. Number one, if you are joyless, this is not a message of shame today, but it's an invitation to examine why. So I was talking to my wife last night. She said, What's, what are you preaching on tomorrow? I said, joy. And she said, huh, that, that might be hard, kind of hard because you're not very joyful at home. <laughs> okay. So first thing you do is you defend yourself, right? That's the number one key of marriage, right? And then, and then realize, hmm, there's actually probably something to that. So if you have some joylessness, I invite myself and to you to examine why. This is not a mass- message of be happy, darn it, right? There are seasons of life that are more stressful and sad than others. There are real burdens. There's depression, psychological and neurological. There are anxiety disorders, psychological and neurological. I'm not 
talking about those things, but I'm saying that often our lack of joy, our lack of manifesting this fruit of the Spirit in our lives is because of a misplaced affection, a misplaced hope on our circumstances. Because if you and I are looking for joy based on our circumstances, we will be disappointed sooner or later. And over time, that disappointment will destroy all joy. Maybe that's where you are today, joyless. It may be because you're seeking horizontal joy without vertical joy, and you just need to reverse that order. Second thought, if you're afraid of horizontal joy, open yourself to life. Every time I see this simple bumper sticker, I'm glad I did. Wag more, bark less. As I say, shut up, kids. I'm trying to read this bumper sticker, right? (laughs) It's simple. It's, you know, conventional wisdom, but it's a really good reminder I realize that there are different personalities, that joy can look different in different people's lives, in different cultures, different seasons, different times, stages of life. But I'd like to invite you to rediscover some childlikeness in your wonder. The wholeheartedness of children is such a model to us for opening yourself to horizontal joy. Wholeheartedness of children and sadness. Have you seen that collection of of videos of unhappy children children at when the baby gender reveals of their next sibling has come. Like, you know, people just, little children just melting in anger. I mean, that, that's sort of wholehearted emotion coming out on the negative side, right? We, need to, we do need to learn to control that a little bit in our lives. But the wholehearted joy of a child, unadulterated, not tainted or ruined by fear of losing that joy, like what happens to us as adults, there's something for us to learn in that. If the end of God's redeeming work in the world and in us is joy, because God is joyful, and if Christ by the Holy Spirit is restoring us to full humanity, the image of the joyful God in us, I'd suggest to you it's actually dishonoring to God and less than human when Christians are dour, lifeless, and more serious than God. So enjoy all that God has made, pleasures and beauty. Reject the sacred secular dichotomy that spiritual things are really the only important things. Embrace the presence and glory residue of God in the everything. From bread to board games and movies to mac and cheese, the Costco homemade version I'm talking about. And be alive. As Irenaeus said, the glory of God is man fully alive. And be wise. If you and I pursue these pleasures as mere hedonists seeking pleasure to escape, then we'll never find what we're looking for and we'll actually reap destruction to our lives. But don't be afraid to be alive. And finally, if you are too busy to find joy, then make little choices to just slow down and pay attention to the now and the this. I'm sure many of you here today are like me. You're not afraid of being joyful. You're distressed and you're tired, and you're burdened. What does the this fruit of, the, of joy look like then? Well, no quick fix, but let me encourage you to just make little choices to slow down and pay attention to the beauties and the glories and joys that are all around us. Be present in the now and the this, not the future or the past. All you have is the now. This is the only thing that exists, the now and the this. And especially in relationships. The source of the greatest, deepest, most satisfying joy is not stuff, 
I love my six-speed fast sports car. I love it, right? But it's not the most satisfying joy. Even as God finds ultimate joy in his inner triune relationship, so too, that is where we find the greatest joy. Husbands, pause today at some point and notice something delightful and joyful about your wife that you haven't thought about in a while. Children, think about your parents that way. Parents, think about that third child that's about to drive you crazy or whatever and be present in the now and the this, that there's something beautiful and delightful even in the midst of lots of other stuff. So if you're too busy to find joy, slow down and pay attention because this is a manifestation of the Spirit's work in us. So as we close and come to the missing bread, I suppose we're having, um, it's, it's an anticipation of the future uh, that I did want to just, as we go to the table today, I wanted you to think about the fact that the final event Jesus has is a celebratory meal. It is one that is marked with sadness, but it is primarily a celebratory meal. And the looking forward when he breaks that bread and pours out that wine is to say, there is a meal coming when we will enter into full joy. I just want to kind of frame that as you come forward and take of the Lord's table today. If you're a Christian, come and make this a renewal of the fruit of the spirit of joy in you. If you're not a Christian today, there's nothing magical about this stuff up here, so it's not going to do you any good. In fact, we'd encourage you to not partake. There's no problem at all. We're thrilled you're here. This is a confession. Taking of this bread and wine is a confession that our hope is in that future eschatological, that future banquet that is ours to come. Let's pray as we close. Thank you for listening to the Human Flourishing Podcast. To learn more or get in touch with me, visit my website, jonathanpennington.com.